And good morning, everyone. Great to see everybody here in church on this uh, St. Patrick's Day. And uh, just as uh, Pastor Hope was uh, describing to the children just a few minutes ago, I hope that this spring, when you see a patch of clover, that it will remind you of God and that each one of those uh, three-leaf uh, shamrocks will remind you that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, a great, great reminder for us. Um, a little theology from nature. Um, but our scripture for today comes from the Gospel of Luke. We've been in Luke for the last few weeks as um, the Sunday school curriculum, you know, for the, we're following the Sunday school curriculum for the kids. Um, they were only working on a few verses today, but I, I want to go ahead and read this whole story. And um, I, I don't know how y'all taught it in Sunday school just the last hour, but I, I want to I read this whole story from Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 36. Now, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, so he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I got something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money in a cert to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now, which one of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Almighty and everlasting God, we thank you for your grace. And Lord, we ask that we might feel that grace once again today. And that we, in turn, would be gracious people to the world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, obviously, from reading that story, you know that today I'm going to be speaking about forgiveness. So let's get right to it. We all need to forgive more. I'm going to stop right there. And if you doze off in the next few minutes, I just want to make sure you got that part. We all need to forgive more. People who don't learn how to forgive simply don't enjoy life. Because unfortunately, the world has many irritating people. Some of them frustrate us to no end, am I right? It's just a fact of life. If we embrace resentment instead of forgiveness, our relationships and even our careers don't get very far. If you want to be a success in this world, major in forgiveness. Our greatest danger in resentment lies not in the wrong done to us, but in the wrong we do to ourselves if we let ourselves become inwardly hardened. Who has the reward when you hold a grudge? You or your enemy? 
How impossible Jesus' ideal seems at first, to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. But it's not impossible. In fact, on second glance, it seems to be the most practical and rational rule for daily living that could possibly be. The only rewards in life come by working through relationships, not by writing them off. But some of us are making our circle of relationships smaller and smaller and smaller every year. Doris Donnelly, in her incisive book, Learning to Forgive, tells about a family she knew. They were very proficient in the use of resentment. They couldn't forgive anyone, and nothing was ever their fault. The family consisted of two parents and their three daughters. The friends of each family member were under constant scrutiny to determine whether or not they belonged in their group. The family socialized together, they sat in church together, they did things in the community together, and failing to include each and every one of the three sisters in a birthday celebration or not greeting every member of the group with beaming smiles and deferential courtesy resulted in ostracism from the family. The family lived to be stroked by others. One year, the parents gave everybody they knew the same Christmas gift. The teachers in their school, the pastor in their church, the principal, uh, everybody got the same gift. And anyone who did not respond immediately with profuse gratitude was eliminated from their Christmas list next year. The family took every delay as a slap in the face to them. And everyone scissored out of their lives knew there was very little hope of ever being sewed back in again. But then the mother of the family died suddenly. The father and the daughters naturally expected large crowds to gather for the final farewells. They enlisted the aid of the local police to handle traffic on the morning of the funeral. Phone calls were made to neighbors and to all their friends. Announcements were sent to people who had moved away. The local motels were even alerted to save a few rooms for out-of-town guests. And then, you guessed it, exactly ten people showed up for the funeral. The husband the daughters, their husbands, one grandchild, and a total of two friends of the mother. It was embarrassing and humbling. The town laughed about it for years afterward. People who scissor others from relationships think they are cutting people out of their lives. In reality, they are only cutting themselves out of the greater human family. They not only die alone, but whether they realize it or not, they live alone. It's a fact of existence that small circles of mutual resentments are not easily broken. You can take a group of goldfish that have been swimming for their entire life in a small fishbowl, and you can dump them out into a lake, and you can turn them loose in that lake, and they'll continue to swim in small circles for a long, long time, unaware of their newfound freedom. Jesus calls this phenomenon saluting only your brethren. It creates an attitude of smallness that is destructive to your work, to your family, and certainly to yourself. Well, during his ministry in the villages of Galilee, Jesus preached passionately about forgiveness. Now, this was something new to most of his disciples. Uh, Peter, he, he didn't understand it. He wanted to be legalistic and statistical about it. But Jesus stated there's no limit to forgiveness. After all, you can't forgive people 490 times without it becoming a permanent attitude. You cannot serve two masters. Either you will bow before the altar of revenge and cut people out of your life, or you will bow before the altar of forgiveness 
and sew yourself into a wider fabric of humanity, as imperfect as it may be. Peter had not realized the greatness of forgiveness. Jesus told Peter, you must forgive from your heart. We know the Greek word um, for heart. It is cardia, which we get cardio and cardiac. But cardia in the Greek means more than the organ in your body. It means the seat of the inner person. When Jesus points to the heart, he means that forgiveness is more than an act. Rather, it's an expression of who we are. Look at how it worked in the lives of those around Jesus. In the example of the woman who received forgiveness from Jesus in our story for today, the main object of the teaching is this Pharisee named Simon. Now, Simon, he's not so much a loving person to begin with. Jesus contrasts the conduct of the woman with that of Simon's. The woman had been loving and kind. She loved Jesus very much. She had many sins to be forgiven for. But her actions, her deeds, it indicated that she'd become a new person. Simon, however, he was quite satisfied with his own righteousness. He had not experienced forgiveness, which might make a real personal relationship with God possible. At this stage, in his personal relationships with others, he exhibited very little love. Simon didn't even extend the little common courtesies to Jesus when he appeared at his home. So Jesus blatantly stated, the person who is forgiven little, who is self-righteous and proud, scissoring out those who are less righteous, they love little. Which reminds me of another Simon from the Bible, the aforementioned Simon Peter. For most of the time that he walked alongside Jesus, he was not prepared to be a leader of the rest of the disciples. Somehow Jesus' life of forgiveness seemed to wear on him. Perhaps it was that day in the garden when Jesus forgave the soldier that came to arrest him. You know the one, the one where Peter cut off his ear and Jesus healed him. Or maybe it was later in that frightful experience of hearing Jesus hanging on the cross and forgiving his enemies, even while he was dying. Or maybe it was after the resurrection when Jesus forgave Peter for denying him three times. Whatever precipitated it, Peter apparently grasped the greatness of forgiveness. Following Christ's death, Peter wrote a letter to the Christians living in Asia Minor. We know it as the book of 1 Peter. Peter begins the second chapter with these words. He says, strip away all malice and all guile, insincerity, envy, and slander, for you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. What incredible power that forgiveness turns loose. It's an expansive spirit. The central thesis in Jesus' assertion about the kingdom of God was that small circles of people would become increasingly larger circles of people through winning over and including others, including our enemies. This is the acid test of Christianity. Virtually every other group in society does everything else that Christians do, but can they forgive like we do? After all, Christians have programs, but so does every other group, right? Christians recite creeds, but so do sororities and fraternities and civic organizations and a thousand other groups. Christians sing songs, but so do other groups, from 99 bottles of beer on the wall to your college alma mater to the national anthem. Christians raise money, so does everybody else. Frankly, friends, we are only revealed by the way we forgive other people, especially our enemies. 
This is what sets us apart. This is what makes us distinct. Now, you don't have to be a Christian to forgive others, of course, but I don't know of any other organization in the world where forgiveness is as central as it is to Christianity. The greatness of Christianity lies not in its development of small pockets of congenial friendships, which is nice. The greatness of Christianity is in its expansive spirit that overthrows resentments, that takes in enemies, that embraces rivals, and seeks the good in all sorts of people across all the barriers that we try to erect to divide them. Forgiveness is what we do for ourselves. Acceptance takes it a step further. That's what we do for others. Stay with me. There's this ancient verse by an unknown poet that goes something like this. I eat peas with honey, been doing it all my life. It tastes kind of funny, but it keeps the peas on my knife. I never met anybody who ate peas with a knife. Y'all ever met anybody who does that? If I tried to do that, I'd have those little green varmints all over the kitchen, you know? I can't imagine. And yet, I understand there was a time when people practiced this custom of eating peas with a knife. I thought about that when I read a story recently. It was by a lady named Corey Connors. Corey tells the story of her mother, who to this day is teased for eating peas with a knife instead of a fork. But there's a wonderful story behind this strange custom. You see, Corey's mom grew up during the Depression. Her family was poor like most of the rest of the country, but they had a vegetable garden that kept them from starving. Strangers passing through town in search of work or a hot meal were always welcomed at her family home and at her family table. They never turned anyone away hungry. Well, one day, her father brought home uh, a man named Henry. Now, Henry didn't know much English, but his gestures of gratitude toward the family were pretty easy to understand. And at dinner that evening, the family waited to let Henry start in on the meal. And eagerly, he grabbed up his knife and dug into the peas. Well, the children in the family were astonished. They'd never seen anybody eat peas like that before. And Henry had this amazing ability to balance all the peas right there on the end of his knife. The children began to giggle and laugh about it, but Dad turned to them sharply, gave them that look. You know that look, right? And uh, he picked up his own knife, and he started trying to eat peas that way. He had much less success than Henry, but he kept at it and eventually captured every last pea on the end of the knife. Well, that day, Corey's mother saw a concrete example of acceptance of treating people with dignity in spite of our differences. And now, years later, the message has been passed down to her children and to her grandchildren. In fact, who knows how many generations of people will learn from the example of a father's acceptance of a man who ate peas with his knife. Now return with me back to the scripture for the day, okay? This time, let's not focus so much on the Pharisee, but on the woman um, who came to the party uninvited, all right? A woman who has lived a sinful life but has heard that Jesus might be at this party. Just a small town girl living in a lonely world. Now, a party in those days was a public event. Homes had these big courts and the uninvited could stand around and observe the guests and all the festivities going on. And this woman, she knelt behind Jesus weeping with her tears falling on his feet. 
Okay? Now, in those days, it was forbidden for a woman to unbind her hair in public. The only people who would do so were prostitutes. Okay? But she not only undid her hair, but she, um, she wiped her, uh, her, her master, her Lord, her Savior, Jesus' feet with her hair. And then she kissed Jesus' feet, and she poured perfume on them. Now, now understand, again, religious leaders such as the Pharisees and Jesus weren't supposed to be anywhere near such a woman. Doing so would make them unclean. When Jesus' host saw what was happening, he thought to himself, well, you know, this proves this man is no prophet. For if God had really sent him, he would know what kind of person this is. And then Jesus answered Simon's thoughts with a parable. He said, a man loaned money to two people, 5,000 to one and 500 to the other. But neither of them could pay him back. So he kindly forgave them both, letting them keep the money. Now, who do you suppose loved him the most after that? Simon answered, well, I suppose the one who owed him the most. Correct, Jesus said. And then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, look, see this woman kneeling here? When I entered your home, you didn't even bother to offer me water to wash the dust off my feet but she's washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You refused me the customary kiss of greeting, but she has kissed my feet again and again ever since I walked in this place. You neglected the usual courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has covered my feet with her perfume. Therefore, her sins, and they are many, are forgiven, for she loved me much. But one who is forgiven little shows little love. And he said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. You see, acceptance changes lives. You and I have seen it happen in other situations with adults as well as with young people. This is the strength of groups like Alcoholics Anonymous and other support groups. When people feel accepted, they find the power to change. There are people who are decent, responsible citizens today because somewhere, someone along the way, gave them the acceptance that they craved. A child psychologist once told about a boy who was brought to him who was labeled incorrigible. The child was supposed to be uncontrollable. He was moody and at first wouldn't talk to the psychologist at all. There simply seemed to be no handle to which to take hold of this child. The boy's own father said, this is the only child I've ever seen in my life who doesn't have a single likable trait, not a single one. From his dad. A psychologist realized, well, this is the starting point, right? He started looking for something for which he could be in approval of. And he found several. He found that the boy liked to carve, and he did it really well. So um, at home, unfortunately, he carved up the furniture, and he got punished for it. But uh, the psychologist bought him a carving set, a set of carving knives and some soft wood. And he also gave him some suggestions about how to use them. And he didn't hold back his approval. He said, you know, Jimmy, you can carve better than any boy I've ever known. And to make a long story short, the psychologist soon found some other things which he could be in approval of. And one day, Jimmy surprised everyone by cleaning up his room without being asked. And so when the psychologist asked him why he did it, Jimmy answered, well, I thought you would like it. This is one of the secrets of Jesus' ministry. He accepted people just as they were, and he changed their lives. You see, the Pharisees were the best people on earth, but there's no evidence that they ever changed anyone else. Their approach was one of avoidance of people with problems, not acceptance. 
But Jesus reached out to those in need. Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. Jesus knew that the greatest need some people have is simply acceptance. Jesus also knew that acceptance changes lives. So here's the last thing we need to see today. That the church is called to be an accepting community. This is who we are and what we are called to be. We are not an exclusive club. We are not a representative sample of the best people in town who gather each week to congratulate one another on our virtues. We are those who know we have been accepted and having been accepted, pass on that acceptance to others. Writer Philip Yancey tells a quite disturbing story in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace. Anybody read that book? What's So Amazing? Yeah, we've got a few. Good. He heard it from a friend who works with the Down and Out in Chicago. And his friend said on one occasion, he said, a prostitute came to me in wretched straits, homeless, sick, unable to buy food for her young, young daughter. And through sobs and tears, she told me she'd been renting out her child to men who wanted to have sex. Okay, it's gross. She made more renting out her daughter for an hour than she could on her own for the night, okay? She had to do it, she said, to support her drug habit. He said, I could hardly hear the sordid story. For one thing, it made me legal, legally liable, he said. I'm required to report cases of child abuse. I had no idea what to say to this woman. And at last, I asked if she'd ever thought of going to a church for help. He said, I'll never forget the look of pure, naive shock that crossed her face. Church, she cried. Why would I ever go there? I was already feeling terrible about myself. They just made me feel worse. What struck me about my friend's story, says Philip Yancey, is that women much like this prostitute would flee toward Jesus, not away from him. The worse a person felt about herself, the more likely she saw Jesus as a refuge. Has the church lost that gift? Evidently, the down and out who flocked to see Jesus when he lived on earth no longer feel welcome among his followers. What's happened? What's happened? Prostitute who rents out her own child. You can't fall much lower than that, right? Could you accept her? Forgive her? This is when the Christian faith gets hard, right? Sometimes it's easier for us to relate to Simon the Pharisee than Jesus the Christ. The only way we can have that kind of accepting heart is to ponder our own acceptance. You and I have fallen short of the glory of God too, but we've received grace upon grace. As Paul Tillich put it, grace strikes us when we are in great pain and restlessness. It strikes us when our disgust for our own being, our weakness, our hostility, and our lack of direction and composure become intolerable to us. It strikes us when year after year after year the long-for perfection of life does not appear, when the old compulsions reign with us as they have for decades. And sometimes at that moment, a wave of light breaks into our darkness, and it's as though a voice says to us, you are accepted. We are accepted. Now we must accept others. 
The greatest need some people have is to be accepted. Forgiveness changes your life. Acceptance changes the lives of others. Let's you and I work together to make this house of worship known as a place where people can discover forgiveness and acceptance in an authentic Christian community. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Will you pray with me? Most holy and loving God, you are an awesome God that pours out grace upon grace. Even in the midst of our sins and our mistakes and our flaws, the things that we've done to hurt others, the things that we should have done to help but didn't, you still forgive us. You still accept us. Lord, help us to be a gracious people, a forgiving people, and accepting people, people like Jesus, who died for us and died for the world. We ask this in his most holy name. Amen.